Greetings. Welcome to In Conversation with Trevor podcast. I go beyond the headlines and beyond the sensational. Today I'm in conversation with Stan Higgins and we are discussing the state of PR, uh, journalism and the highlights of uh, what's happened in this, in this industry. Enjoy this truly inspirational conversation. <music> Higgins, welcome to In Conversation with Trevor. Thank you for the invitation. Great to catch up with you. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to this, con to this conversation. You and I come a long way, you a know. A long, long time ago since you were very, very young. Very, very young in the newsroom, um, you know, a cub reporter. And, and, and you are one of those people that were holding my hand. Um, so thank you very much for, for that. And, and I think a lot of journalists are grateful to uh, the professional guidance that you've given them over years. Stan, you will be celebrating 40 years in this field. Um, when you look back, I, I'm, I'm reminded that you, you've had highlights and lowlights, and we're going to get to one of those uh, highlights. For you, what has been your worst public relations disaster that you've had to deal with, without obviously sharing, uh, you know, naming names as it were? Sure. Um you know, one of the interesting things about public relations is that we try to keep people prepared. Mm -hmm. Like the Boy Scouts, the motto should be be prepared. And we've tried very hard with all clients, and I think all PR consultants work hard to try and make sure that any client is prepared for a disaster. So when one comes along, one hopefully is ready for it. And in the case of my own experience, we were ready for it, which I'm pleased about. Mm. Um, one of our clients, and this, this goes back to the late 80s, uh, one of our clients was a leading beverage manufacturer right here in, in Zimbabwe, and um, they had a problem. At that particular time, there was a fuel shortage. It was one of the early fuel shortages that we experienced. And they had night and day shifts, and for the night shifts, they were hiring transport from informal operators uh, to get their staff home after night shifts and to get the people there for early morning shifts. Uh, the things we call combis now, but in those days, they, they had different sort of names, but uh, it was informal. And one night on the way home with the shift work uh, group, uh, there was a can of fuel in the vehicle, and it wasn't in a jerry can, it was in a plastic bottle. And there was a fire, it caught uh, fire, exploded, and I think eight people were killed in the vehicle. The vehicle may have been a bit overloaded as well. So the company had this major drama on its hands of, was it responsible for the deaths of its employees through contracting a vehicle, which quite clearly was contravening regulations? So it was quite a, an incident. And of course, immediately the media were interested. Immediately uh, the authorities were interested. But also, more important, the families were interested. So um, we swung into operation. It was literally in the early hours of the morning. I think it was like 4 o'clock in the morning. And by the time work started, we were ready to handle the media. Um, it wasn't good. You know, eight mm. people had died. It was a, ser a, a, a serious situation, severe, problematic. Um, the company did well in terms of 
making sure that the priority was always other employees mm. and the families of the people who had passed. There was also a need to explain what they were doing uh, and why they were doing it to the authorities. Um, there was a learning curve to be had, as there always is. How can we not do this again? Mm. Uh, but I'm glad to say they generally handled it very well. But it wasn't easy because of this loss of life. And I think that's something mm. that is always the worst. You know, if you have a crisis and it involves a financial situation or a moral situation, it's one thing. But when you're dealing with human lives, it's really very important to make sure that the, the prime focus mm. is on A, the regret at the loss of life, mm. and B, making sure that those who survive, both in the families and in the business, are treated properly. And also to make sure that uh, one learns that one can't do this sort of thing again. Mm. Um, there was a, a fairly significant shift in the way transportation was handled by corporates at that time. Because they weren't the only people doing this. Because at the time, um, the public transport was failing somewhat. And people were relying more and more on the informal operators of, of public transport. So I think what happened is that people became a lot more mature about who they appointed to do their transportation, making sure that they followed the rules, making sure that their vehicles were roadworthy, that the drivers had the proper licensing and the proper defensive driving courses, that there was in vehicles uh, the right sort of medical and fire equipment, etc., etc. Mm. So I think um, it was a learning curve, uh, but it was a sad one mm. on the back of that. Yeah. I'm glad to say, though, that the families responded very well. They were shocked. They were horrified. They never pointed fingers. They were uh, so traumatized that they really wanted comfort. They wanted assurances. And, you know, large families, people want to know the breadwinner's mm. gone. What can we do? And I think the company did extre extremely well to make sure that people were looked after, people were consoled. Of course, there are always people in a disaster situation who want to take advantage. Mm. So creeping into the media was the odd voice saying, mm. ah, but they didn't do this, they didn't do that. Mm. This was the problem, that was the problem. And it wasn't the media people as much as people who were contributing the public. to the media. Mm. I have to say the media did extremely well. They were very, very objective about the whole thing. And they took to examining what was right and wrong in the issue as well. So it, was, it remained in the public spotlight for a good two or three months. Mm. It was an issue that really didn't die mm. after the first day or two or the first week. It really carried on. And even in subsequent years on anniversaries, we'd often get media people saying, it's a year, it's mm. two years. What have you learned? What, what has yeah. happened? Yeah. And uh, that's important, I suppose, because the media is in part to hold everybody accountable, mm. not just government, but do, uh, also corporates. Stan, do you get the sense that, generally speaking, in, 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 in this country and maybe in the region, that PR is given the space that it deserves? Because I see PR disasters almost every day and, and there is no accountability. Uh, big corporates get away with murder because of the way they treat the public, because of the way they communicate to, to, with, with, with the public. Do you get a sense this is something that's important as far as um, our, our business is concerned? I think your question is, uh, does PR get the right space? Mm. I think the answer to that is no. A great many people in public sector and private sector alike think that PR is some kind of magic wand 
that is waived and all is sorted out. And it's not really like that at all. A properly constituted public relations program really starts with an examination of what's right and wrong. You know, we have uh, in PR what we call the six-point planning model. When you do a PR program, you go through this methodically and you follow the rules. What are the six points? Right. What Step are the number six one yeah. is an analysis of the situation. Where is the organization now? What's right? What's wrong? What are the strengths, the weaknesses, the opportunities, the threats? All of the sort of things you need to do to examine exactly where you are so that you don't have a situation where the chief executive says, this is our problem, please deal with it, and then you run away and deal with that. It may be the problem, but again, it might not be. So it's always best for the PR people, whether in-house or consultants, to do a thorough examination. Step number one, analysis of the mm -hmm, situation. Mm -hmm. Step number two mm -hmm. is definition of PR objectives. Where do you want to go from here? You've now analyzed where you are. What do you need to do uh, as a PR program to achieve an end result? And the end result is usually tied in with things like corporate plans, uh, desirability. Uh, you know, basically in life, like human beings, organizations want to be liked, generally. They want to be known and they want to be liked. And that's really what the objectives are designed to do, to create uh, a positive situation out of the possibility of a negative. I have in the past done analyses of situations where things are fine. The organization is popular, it's got good products, it's respected, but it's not always the case. Very often there are little problem areas, big problem areas, and sometimes you've really got a lot of work to do to get from a very negative situation mm. into a positive. Step number three, of course, is uh, then uh, analyzing what to do. Mm. How are you going to get there? What are the methods you're going to use? You know, I think a lot of PR practitioners come to the table with a ready-made set of ideas and say, right, if you do this, if you do that, it'll all be all right. That's also wrong. It's not going to work mm. like that. A PR program has to be tailor-made to that analysis that you've done and to the PR objectives you've set for yourself. Mm. You then need to look at the budget and the resources that are required, which is step number four. Nothing happens without money. Nothing happens without other resources. And very often organizations are prepared to do things, but maybe not to the extent that they should. That's fine if there's a budget uh, capacity that doesn't allow for it. But I do think that if people are serious about what they want to do, the resources that need to be allocated must be allocated. Mm. And it's not always financial. Mm. Very often you're going to be calling on management to spend much more time on PR activity mm. than they would like or they've been used to. And that resource, the people spending time, is just as important as an expenditure of money. Step number five is to make sure that you analyze what we call the publics. Mm. In marketing, we talk of market segments. In PR, very similarly, we talk about uh, publics. Mm. So you've got to analyze who are the publics of this organization. Uh, there might be government and other regulatory authorities, consumers, customers, uh, employees, neighbors, uh, the industry that you're in, etc., etc. It's got to be looked at very carefully because very often a communications program that is developed by the PR consultant must address all of these different publics. Mm. And it's not the same message, it's not the same methods. Mm. They differ from time to time, mm. of course. Interesting. Inevitably, and the sixth one? Uh, the sixth one is to go back to the beginning, it's a review. Okay. At a given point, 
you have to review what you've mm. done. Mm. Was it worthwhile? Mm. Did we achieve what we set out to do? Mm. If we did, what do we do now? If we didn't, why? Mm. And how can we move in a direction that might be different mm. to still achieve those objectives? Mm. Or has the time now come to go in a different direction? Have, are we looking at something else? And of course, in this very dynamic corporate world of the 21st century, um, things change and things change quickly and businesses change. I, I remember when I first started in PR, telecommunications organizations were non-existent. There was the National mm. Telephone Authority and that was it. It's very different now. In those days, there were half a dozen commercial mm. banks. So the financial services sector is hugely different mm. today to what it was then. And the dynamics change and a PR program must change with those dynamics too. Mm. Very often, people's desires from a PR perspective are the same as they've always been. To be known, to be wanted, to be liked, to get good mileage, as it were. Mm. But uh, really things change and organizations change mm. with it. PR people and PR activities must change too. Mm. And, and, and tell me, how is it like practicing PR in the social media noise? Where you have all sorts of things thrown at companies um, in social media, where you think you've fixed issues, but the public comes up and says, "No, you haven't looked at that and look at that." How 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 are you able to 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 be on your toes and address the PR requirements of your clients in this social media environment? Social media and the entire electronic sphere that we're in now is both a blessing and a disguise. The blessing part is that you can communicate and very quickly with everybody, with the world, literally. Uh, the, the, the problem areas are quite obvious. You've just mentioned you're giving a platform to people and if you put your head above the parapet, as much as there's people out there who are going to cheer you, there are people who are going to throw things at you. <laughs> Always. <laughs> For whatever reason. Yeah. And sometimes the reasons are spurious. They are just doing it because they can not because they have any genuine grievance or worry. Um, so uh, the social media is something that is once again controllable to a certain degree. And any organization that tries to underplay the importance of social media will come short very quickly. Uh, those people who take it seriously and lead rather than be led, um, they're the ones who succeed. Mm. You know, we always say in business that change is the only constant. And the successful business is the one that knows the change is coming and leads the change. doesn't wait for it to happen and be swept by a tsunami of change. They are the people who are leading the change and they are, are fairly successful. And so it is with social media. If you utilize it effectively, you get results. If you ignore it, you don't get results. Mm. But no matter who you are, no matter how good you are, how perfect your track record, social media is a time bomb because it can go off at any second for the most spurious of reasons uh, and often unplanned and often from people who have nothing and more. And what, what do you do as a PR consultant? Well, the, the, the key is to know when to respond and when not to respond. Aha. You know, we often follow the progress of the royal family in the United Kingdom and their traditional rule has been do Don't not respond. respond. It'll go away. Do not respond if it's nonsense. Um, and to a large degree, that still is the case today. And for businesses, one can't be like that. One needs to know 
when to respond and when not to. And of course, that's the great success is, is knowing the difference. Because sometimes responding adds fuel to the fire and just makes it worse. Sometimes ignoring does the same. Mm -hmm. To know when not to is, is really the key. And so that's so the what, what's, what's, what's the sweet spot there? The sweet spot, I suppose, is that if you have a good story to tell and your track record is a good one, it's much easier to go forward than if you're a dubious organization mm -hmm. with lots of question marks in your past and present. Uh, you find it much more difficult to convince people. Mm. If, you are a, if you're traditionally a, an organization that keeps quiet, that doesn't speak out, that is not known, has a history of a few problems here and there, you're going to find it much more difficult to persuade people that you're on the good side of the mm. world uh, than organizations who are out there, open. You know, we had a very, very, we have in our country a very successful organization in the financial services sector. It is in fact in insurance. And traditionally it was very quiet about its social responsibility. And yet it was, I think, probably one of the top three in terms of applying social responsibility throughout the community. And they kept quiet about it. And they were attacked once publicly for not being Zimbabwean, for not doing the right thing and for not showing. And yet it had this huge history of helping the community and doing good things. And so while one wants to hide one's light under a bushel and do it for the purposes of doing it, uh, the need is there to show people, be good and be seen to be good. Mm. It, it helps you and it helps the community. Mm. And the social media is like that as well. Uh, control it where you can. Be there and never let... Uh, if there's a fire burning and it's got to be put yeah. out, put it out put quickly it out. while it's manageable. Mm. And I think that's the key there. Uh, and don't wait too long. Tell me, so you've got the corporate as a brand. Mm -hmm. You've got the leadership of the corporate. And one assumes that some of them are brands. What advice do you give in terms of does the CEO have his own PR um, a program of some sort? Do they get onto social media? How do they get, how do they use social media? I ask because I find um, Zimbabwean uh, managers, executives are reticent, reluctant to use social media, which I think is, is a disservice to, to, to who they are. Look at Elon Musk um, and the way that he utilizes uh, social media. Look at Bill Gates, the way he uh, uses uh, uh, social media. Look at Donald Trump. <laughs> Absolutely. They use social media to the extent that sure. they decided to shut him down. What advice do you give to corporate leaders in terms of their brands, building their brands, their voice in, in society, and the use of social media? It's quite simple, really. Um, and I always say to chief executives, you are the face of the organization. You cannot hide in your office or boardroom and let other people do it. I get a bit upset when I see that the face of an organization is the PR spokesperson. Oh. And I find that sad um, because you're losing out on being able to judge the leadership. You're, you're getting, speaking on behalf of the organization, a person who is the voice but not the face. Mm. And I say to PR people at the top levels, you've got to be seen there. So the answer is yes. They need to be part of the PR program. So they need to be prepared for it. The problem I find uh, here in Zimbabwe is that many uh, people at chief executive level are not comfortable with public speaking. 
They're very uncomfortable. Uh, they don't like being on television. They don't like speaking on radio. They don't Why? like being in public gatherings. I suppose it's because they have a lack of confidence. They've if, not been trained. They're untrained and yeah. there's a lack of confidence. You know, if a person is confident, he or she is more likely to go forward and be upfront mm, and public. Mm, mm, But mm. those people who are less than comfortable mm. are the ones who are going to be reticent. And I think that's a problem. Mm. Uh, so we always try, when I say we, mm. many PR practitioners try, as part of their PR programs, mm. to do what we call personal imaging, mm. which is to get people in leadership and management positions mm. ready mm. for public speaking, for being on television and doing the right thing. I always uh, love to throw the example of the Exxon disaster yeah. back in the late 1980s when um, Exxon, one of their tankers, had an oil spill off the coast of Alaska and destroyed a large amount of pristine coastal areas along the Alaskan coast. The chief executive of Exxon took it upon himself to be the only spokesman. Now, that's a bad thing as well, especially if you've got an ongoing crisis. Mm. You can't be available 24-7 for an unlimited amount of time. You've got to make sure yeah. that there are other people who are equally able to speak. Eventually, he was, I suppose, so tired and desperate, he was cornered in a passageway under bright lights uh, by a cameraman who asked him a question which he just erupted at and on camera flew at people. And all the good work they'd been doing in preceding days to alleviate the situation was, de was destroyed at a, a, yeah. a, a stroke. Within weeks, he mm. was gone. As Nyaradzo, we strive to continuously bring convenience to our clients. Nyaradzo Group is proud to introduce Sawi, a new virtual chatbot assistant on WhatsApp. With Sawi, you are now able to interact with us from the comfort of your home and can be assisted anytime via WhatsApp. With life assurance products, diaspora products, applying and assessing your policy, payment platforms, claims information, and any other queries concerning payments, policy information, or products and services. Simply WhatsApp Sawi on plus 263-712-992892 or register and start interacting and receiving notifications from Sawi on WhatsApp. Now, join in and experience a new level of convenience 24 hours a day with Sawi. that Zimbabwean executives think that PR is below their pay grade? I think so. Uh, I have to say you're absolutely right there. Um, all too often a chief executive will say, right, we want PR, but they will report to the sales manager or the uh, marketing manager or whatever. And I will say, no, 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 no. The PR person reports, reports to the, the chief CEO. executive or the board. You know, it's, that's where it is. It's, you, you're worried about your reputation, which is your single biggest asset then deal with mm. it properly and make mm. sure that you control the program. Yes, there are aspects in a PR program that are the domain of marketing, the domain of the financial yeah, side, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. But the basic thrust of PR is a total responsibility of the chief executive. Mm. And the chief executive is actually the chief PR practitioner mm. Mm. in that organization. Face of the organization. Totally. Absolutely. Totally. Stan, we, we had... Uh, recently a public relations disaster. Will Smith going crazy on, on Chris Rock. 
if you were Will Smith, a PR consultant, what would you be saying to him right now? Well, it was fascinating. I watched it live and I was absolutely engaged with it. My initial thought it was some kind of publicity stunt, <laughs> but within minutes it was quite obviously that it wasn't. To me, it was a traditional mistake made, sometimes by an individual, sometimes by an organization, to do the wrong thing. And that's quite simply what it was. Um, in his mind, he had built up that he was doing something positive. If I was his PR consultant, I'd have been down at the Dolby Theatre within minutes, banging on the door to get in and speak to him, because he was about to have the best platform in wow. the world to sort that problem out, receiving the best actor Oscar. He knew he was going to get it. Of course he was. He had the world's eyes watching him for several minutes, and that was the time to sort the problem out, and he didn't. Um, if I had been his PR consultant, I'd have been down there, I'd have gotten to him and said, right, get on stage now, apologize, grovel. You must say you've done wrong. You have done wrong, admit it. Get Chris Rock up on stage with you, apologize to him mm. in front of the, the billions. And also, immediately come up with a, 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 what I would have thought would have been a very clever thing to do and say, I'm going to commit myself now to a lifetime of fighting against violence. Let me say from here that I will be from here uh, a preacher of nonviolence. Mm. And then the very next morning to go to a school and talk to people mm. and say to young people, wow. impressionable young people, you saw what I did. It was wrong. Uh, there's no excuse for it. But what I want to do is tell you, don't do it. And then seriously and with, with his heart in it, engage in an activity mm. forever of preaching nonviolence. He would have ameliorated that situation enormously. He chose not to. Mm. His own speech was a self-pitying thing, which made more people irritated. The tears just didn't wash. Absolutely. And you know that the next day you could see that that statement of apology had come from the PR mm. uh, advisor. Was it a good statement or what? I thought it, it wasn't was a... a bad statement, yeah. but it was too little, too, too late. late. And you know, when you've got a situation like that where literally a billion people are watching, you've got to deal with that fire in seconds. Mm. And he could have done and I think if he had taken the steps I've just said, mm. he would have sorted that problem out mm. straight away. Mm. Instead, he has created a lifelong problem for himself. himself. No matter what he does now, he will always be remembered as the man who lost his temper and assaulted somebody. Fascinating. Um, and I do think that the, the huge amounts of discussion about it are all speculative. Nobody really yeah. knows. Um, but they're damaging. And nobody wants to be damaged. People want to deal with being liked, and being admired, being respected. And he's going to have to work very hard to achieve that. He has his diehard fans. I mean, if you watch social oh, media, yes. which we were talking about, yeah. the voices for are as many as the voices <laughs> against. against. But the fact of the matter is what he did was wrong, yeah. unacceptable. Mm. He uh, did something that is a negative to show in front of impressionable mm. people. Mm. And uh, as a man that people are trying to push forward and edge on. Um, it, it was the pinnacle of, of his career so far, receiving that Oscar. It was quite something. And to have uh, stolen his own thunder just a few minutes beforehand was a sadness mm. and a tragedy. But it could have been alleviated. Because I gather he's going to be kicked out of the academy now. Well, or he's, he's got to resign. He's, he's preempted eh? that by yeah. resigning. But they are still going to discuss... Uh, 
what to do, and mm. they have to make a stand. Mm. They won't take the Oscar precedent, away from them. Precedent, isn't uh, it? It isn't really. There were five other people who have been eliminated from the Academy before. But not for that kind not of... For, uh, yeah. Not for that, no, yeah. for other reasons. Yeah. Uh, usually moral type mm. things. Stan, I'm going, to, I'm going to put you on the spot and give you an assignment. PR assignment to fix Zimbabwe's image. If you're going given this assignment, one, would you take it? And two, where would you start and what would you do? Would I take it at the drop of a hat? Hmm. But only if, let's say it would be the government of Zimbabwe that would appoint somebody to do that, only if they would take the advice that is given to them. You can't try and undertake a campaign of any kind with one hand tied behind the back. And if the government were prepared to listen to what uh, suggestions would come their way and to implement the program, I would say yes. Mm. One of the problems that corporates of any kind face, not just governments or public sector bodies, but all corporates, is they often think that whatever they do that's wrong can continue to be done under some kind of smoke shield, smoke and, uh, and mirrors shield of protection. And the answer to that is no. If you're going to try and tell people that you are an organization that should have a good reputation, deserves a good reputation, you then have to earn it. Anything you do that is contrary to the principles of that good reputation have to be eliminated. Mm. So if there are problems there, they need to be addressed. And we have a great many problems in this country, uh, historic and current, and they need to be addressed. And a good PR program would deal with that. So the answer is yes, I would take it, but I would say under the condition that you do what mm. we are telling you to mm. do. Um, there's no guarantee that what we recommend is going to result in what is wanted, but I think it would go a long way to ameliorating mm. and going towards a positive image. Mm. Um, it's interesting, and people often debate, uh, there are characters in history for, for whom quite clearly there is no, uh, no sorting the problem out. Adolf Hitler, yeah, uh, Joe Stalin. You, you can't put any PR on those no. people. When, when something is so bad that it can't be yeah. salvaged, you have to admit it. Yeah. And there are. There yeah. are situations. Yeah. There are people. But they're not in the, the majority. The majority of people, organizations, countries, governments, public sector bodies, situations are manageable. Mm. And you can, with the right, right amount of time, do it. Mm. Another expectation that perhaps should be dashed quickly in people's minds. PR doesn't work overnight. Mm. It often takes many, many years, mm. particularly if there's been a negativity at the beginning. Mm. And one of the truths is that very often people look at serious PR after a drama. It's like people always say, oh, well, they weren't religious before, but they had that crisis. Yeah. Now suddenly they yeah. are very religious. So from what I'm hearing, you, 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 you come in and say to the Zimbabwean government, change your habits. Mm-hmm. change what the things that you say. I can't fix your PR if you can't change those things. Am I right there? Uh, first of all, historic things need mm. to be addressed. What's mm. been done in the past that hasn't been savory, that people keep going mm. back to. Let's address it. Let's deal with it. And if wrong was done, let's address it. Mm. Mm. The second thing is, what are you doing now? What is your current behavior? Uh, what are you doing wrong? And let's address that. Mm. And then thirdly, where do you want to go in the future? And can we start putting the building bricks mm, together mm. for that future that you see for yourself? And uh, if they did it seriously, 
it would work. Yeah. Let me take you to a, a point of discomfort for the industry, the Pottinger uh, case in South Africa, mm. where we've had PR companies finding themselves compromised because of the clients that they are handling sure. and the requirements from those clients, point number one. Point number two, or acting on behalf of individuals and they get themselves entangled. Or you find this PR guru, um, you know, stumbling over whatever. What, what's your sense about those, particularly the, 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 the was it the Portinger? I can't remember yes, the, the yes. name, the Portinger thing in, in South Africa. Have you reflected on those? On those yes, I have. Yeah. Uh, th there have been, and there are quite a few instances yeah. where this has occurred, where the PR consultancy or the PR people have been compromised by the client. And I think what is important is that if, Let's say the government said we want to appoint a PR yeah. consultant. Let it be out there, open, upfront, nothing behind closed doors. When things happen behind closed doors, that's when people start saying, mm. what's really going on? Mm. And I think that happened in many of these cases, that a lot went on behind the scenes without being yeah. upfront. Yeah. And that's where the problem occurred. And no matter how, uh, you know, it, I think every PR consultant has had an experience where a client has compromised them in some way by not doing the right thing. The key there is to make sure that it's addressed and dealt with quickly and sorted out. And, you know, if people do wrong, they need to be brought to book. Mm. If things happen that shouldn't have happened, they mm. need to be resolved one way or the other. Mm. And the, the only time a PR consultancy really stumbles is when denials take place, yeah. Yeah. as in that case, when subterfuge happens and they try to go back a few steps, it's too late then. Mm. You know, the die is cast, the, the doors are open, and there's no going back. Uh, and I think a readiness to accept what's been done and then to address it quickly, that's the key there. Mm. But, but yes, mm. there are also out there a lot of people whose PR credentials are very suspect. Okay, so there's you know, that problem. Too. You often hear of lobbying going on yeah. in different parts of the world, and sometimes you hear of some unsavory practices related to that lobbying. Political lobbying is mm. a perfectly normal part of life, but it needs to be in the public eye. Mm. Lobbying and PR activity that are a little bit too much underground and a little bit too much involving unsavory things, that's where the problem comes mm. about. We in Zimbabwe have been accused of that many times. We heard that there was a, a, a PR consultant in Washington who was doing things on our behalf. Well, I'm sorry to say, I didn't see any improvements in our <laughs> reputation in the United States as a result of that. So whatever was being done was clearly wrong. And we spent lots of money, millions of, of money. money. Mm. Yeah. You know, I think there are a lot of people, not a lot of people, there are some people out there who will say, I'm going to take the money and run, and I'm going to get so much money, it doesn't matter if I get spattered by a few uh, stones thrown my way. And I think that's, it's a bit sad, but yeah. I think that's possibly that's, yeah. what has happened in the past. Yeah. Um, Stan, you, you, one of the things you've done, which uh, for me uh, stand out as um, great work, is your for 14 years you worked with uh, the Arare Mayor's Christmas Cheer Fund, um, and for I think for four year four of those years you were you were chairman. Um, great work. It became a highlight of uh, Zimbabwe's uh, social, business, and and, and caring. Um, calendar. I, I got the sense that there was a lot of work behind the scenes to put this thing together. Um, 
you raised lots of money for the underprivileged. Talk to me about that initiative and what to you were the highlights of uh, the Harari's uh, Mayor's Christmas Cheer Fund. All right. Well, my good friend and media colleague, uh, Alan Riddell, was the real brains behind getting the Mayor's Christmas Cheer Fund going again in the mid-80s. It had existed in the 70s, but after independence, it just sort of went under. But it was 1985, he revived it, and I got involved very quickly. Um, one of the things that I felt was important was that we shouldn't be operating alone. So we linked ourselves to the then four cities. Aha. At that time, Harare, Bulawayo, Motari, and Gweru were the four cities. So we linked the four together, and we worked together very closely. Um, there was a lot of activity each year for the cheer funds. The, the sort of cherry on the cake being the annual live television mm. program, which is what everybody mm. used to cling on to. That's what they saw. That was the face of the cheer fund. You're quite right, though. We used to sort of start meeting around about April each year, plan the year. Wow. And the second half of the year was filled with activity. And although we called it the Christmas cheer fund, the idea wasn't to give uh, charities uh, some kind of treat at Christmas, but to provide enough of an injection of support that it would be good for them for the rest of the mm. year. And mm. that's what really we were trying to achieve. Mm. A number of activities uh, culminating in the television program each year. We had a lot of people with us as well. I think I'm right in saying that we had um, a working party of about 15 people mm. made up of the mayor and the mayoress, current, um, a couple of people from within the council stroke municipality, and the rest were volunteers from the um, private sector. The, the mayor has played an important role in this whole thing. Talk to me about that. Very much so. Um, we wanted the mayor and the mayoress of the city mm. to be regarded as mother and father. Yeah. People who could be relied upon to do good things for the people. Um, and people who had their roles to play, obviously, in the political or administrative spectrum. But here, when it came to social responsibility were caring people, and to, in the main they were. Mm. I never came across a mayor who wasn't really interested in the benefits to the to the underprivileged. Mm. They really were, mm. even the ones who sometimes were called into question. But generally they were good. And the mayoresses generally were very good as well. They gave a lot of time. Um, I have to, in particular, uh, Charles Tawengwa, when mm. he was mayor twice, his wife Sai, she was amazing. Wow. If I tell you she spent all day, every day, for a good three or four months of the year, working on Mayor's Cheer Fund activities, I'm probably understating. Mm. She was devoted, dedicated, would do something at the drop of a hat, and everything I ever suggested she should do, she did. So she wasn't the only one, but she was the prime example. Mm. I think a lot of people um, underestimate the need out there. Oh. And of course, now it's even worse than it was then. There, there were hundreds of charitable institutions that needed just, help. Could just name them roughly. Who were you helping? Well, we, we, I think, I'm right in saying at the end of each year, we used to disperse to about 100 different organizations. The, the rule being that they all had to be registered welfare organizations mm -hmm. with a welfare number mm -hmm. so that they were all above board. Um, the big ones were people like Harari Children's Home. That's been run for the most part of the last 40 years by the marvelous Maria Satoli, mm. who is just the most wonderful uh, and caring person. She's still there and still doing so much for children in need. Um, they were a, a very hard working part of the, the cheer fund, mm. and they got benefits. Um, Soda, out in Highfield, mm. I'd never heard of it before, the Society of the Destitute Aged. Um, that was an institution which had been going since the 40s. 
and it was they always used to get a benefit from us. Um, the Jairus Jiri organization. Mm. These are organizations with long traditions of, of really serving and doing things. Uh, St. Giles, many, many, many. Mm. So I ask because some our viewers out there might not know this, but yeah. uh, the Harare Mayor's Christmas Cheer Fund was started, I think, in 1960, 1961 by uh, Mayor Ivo and Chami Peach. They were the people, the couple that uh, started this. And and people like Mayor, Executive Mayor Much Masunda, uh, and Figile Masunda, the late Mayor, so mm. rest in rest in peace, uh, did quite quite a lot of uh, work there. But that's not the case anymore. Um, uh, uh, Stan, talk to me about that. What's the status of uh, the Chris, uh, Mayor's Christmas Cheer Fund? I, I'm not involved and haven't been for a, a long time. And of course, my exit from the Mayor's Cheer Fund had a little bit of a problem area, which you would probably mm. remember. Mm. We can talk about that. Um, but uh, the problem that I see it now is that it's been given some kind of second-class status. When we were going at its strongest, there wasn't a soul in the municipal organization who treated it lightly. It was treated with the utmost respect. Mm. If a resource was required, it was given. If something was being done, it was given full support. And possibly my observation is that maybe people think it's something that can be done in a few minutes yeah. or in a short amount of time, and it's not given the resources that are needed. And the resources in the main are people's time. Yeah. And I yeah. think that's probably what the problem is. Mm -hmm. Very sad. And your exit? Yeah. Um, the mayor at the time of my exit after those 14 years was an individual who was uh, becoming a little bit unpopular in, in the community. Uh, whether for right or wrong reasons, he was. And he was being targeted as the problem behind a lot of things. Uh, in the city. So we are the chief. Who is that remind us, by the way? Uh, it the was the, the late Solomon Toen. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. Um, and he, he was a hard worker. He really was. Uh, but we said, maybe what we should do is take the limelight a tiny bit off you and more on to the rest of the work that's being done. He didn't like that. Hmm. He wanted to be in the spotlight because all the other mayors had been in the spotlight. And I suppose for a mayor to be the person recognized publicly as the father who has given all these benefits to the disadvantaged is, is probably so great that to be not sidelined, that wasn't the objective, but for the spotlight to be taken away was a little bit too much. And, you know, politicians are very different sort of people. The spotlight has to be constant and it must always be on the key person. And I think that's what the problem was. So I resigned and uh, I, I felt that the best use of the cheer fund mm. would be to help the underprivileged and not act as some kind of um, boost for the city of Harare leadership. Mm. So Stan, you, you were born in Bulawayo, am I right? Yes, indeed. Uh, where were you born in Bulawayo and which schools did you go to? Well, I was born in the Marta Day Hospital. Mm. <laughs> and I, I look at the, the lovely picture behind us and I see it sitting there in the background right. just past the trade fair. Um, and I went to school at Milton, mm -hmm. Bulawayo, Milton's mm -hmm. junior and then senior. Mm -hmm. And uh, I lived in Bulawayo until I was 18, 19, and uh, 
then moved into journalism, which involved a, a transfer up to Harare. Mm. So well, why, why formative you, years there. And so before Milton, which school did you, the primary school that you went to? I went to Coghlan, which was ah. what we called KG1 and 2. Right. Then for standard 1 to 5, which is now up to grade 7, was Milton Junior, mm. and then Senior, Milton Senior, mm. all, all mm. throughout. Mm. And then you went into journalism. Talk mm. to me about why you decided to go into, into journalism. I liked, I, I like writing. The spoken word, and more particularly the written word, are, for me, the things I enjoy the most. And if one is ever given a gift, and one recognizes it, as you found yourself in journalism, the written word and the spoken word mm. are it, you must utilize them, and so that's why I went in. The company that's now called Zim Papers, mm. which was the old RPNP, used to run its own cadet journalism school every year, and I went into the Cadet Journalist School that it year. It was called the Rhodesia Printing and Publishing Company. That's right. Which yes. then became the Argus PNP or, no, or no, the other way RPNP around. RPNP was an arm of the Argus Company ah, of South right. Africa. Okay, okay. They had the majority shareholding, although a certain amount of shareholding was held on the stock market mm. here. And they had a, a journalism training the, uh, yeah. school. It yeah? had a school every year from January to June run by a very uh, competent operator. In the year that I was there, his name was Bill Arnold. He'd been an editor of the Sunday Mail. He'd been an editor of the, the Post in Mutari. Um, and he was a fine journalist and a great respecter of the, the rules and ethics of journalism. And he instilled in us a sense of respect for the profession, which I think was important. Uh, and a very hands-on training school as well. Everything was taught. Mm. It was less political and more about the technical skills required. An observation I have of a lot of uh, journalism training that I see going on now, it's very political, and it doesn't do some of the hands-on stuff, and I find that that's probably a missing element. It's a sometimes. big missing element. Mm. And the respect. Do you think we as a profession still have the respect? And if we don't, why? I think that a lot of journalists are well respected because they speak up and they speak out. Many journalists seem to compromise themselves by a willingness to go along with what people are saying. If a politician tells you the sky is blue, mm. look out the window mm. and have a good look yourself. Mm. <laughs> is it blue? <laughs> so, I, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm saying politician, mm. but it's not sure, just politicians. You know, we, you and I had this discussion, I think, when we used to run the Marketing 2000 conferences and we had a big discussion about it, it's not just public authorities that sometimes uh, try to crush journalists' free spirit. Corporates do as it's well. Private sector. We've, we've seen the private sector saying, I'm not putting ads in your paper if you run that story. Well, that's appalling. That's, mm. a, that's an absolute travesty mm. of free speech and can't be allowed. Um, and I think one of the problems that uh, a lot of journalists today face, particularly younger people, is they think that to compromise and to not tell the whole truth is just the way it's done. And the few people who fight against that are the ones we admire mm. and we really like to see coming up. But it's not just in Zimbabwe. I think around the world we see quite a polarization where, where objectivity mm. is sometimes lost and people are very subjective, particularly in a political perspective. Mm. Um, you look at the United States, for example, a lot of journalists hated Donald Trump simply because they didn't like Donald yeah. Trump. It didn't matter what his what? policies were. They didn't like the Donald. <laughs> and so that was the problem. And the same with Joe Biden. Yeah. People who liked 
Donald Trump. We are so polarized, <laughs> isn't it? The, and yeah. You know, when, every time I talk about how bad things are in journalism, I, I, want, I always want to make an effort to, to say there's a certain context. I mean, mm. if you look at our country, a lot of things don't work. Yeah. Um, and and, and uh, banking, there are problems in the government, there's problems in hospitals, there's problems, you know, doctors commit fraud, lawyers commit fraud. So we are a broken society. But for me, the focus on journalism is because I think we have a bigger role in providing uh, in being the conscience of society, absolutely, uh, in leading from the front, and if we are broken, the brokenness of society is going to get worse. Do you absolutely. agree? Uh, totally, totally. Yeah. I suppose it's it's natural in a in an environment where there is that broken status yeah. for journalism to be affected. Uh, but uh, it would be so great if we could see, as you say, the the firebrands in journalism leading the way, and and making sure that truth is never mm. uh, covered up that the facts are always known, no matter how bad they are. Going back to what we were saying about saying to the government to do a PR mm, program mm, for mm. them, admit what's wrong. Admit what was done was wrong. Admit what is being done is wrong. Mm. And, and address it. Genuinely address it. Be yeah. seen to have a genuine desire to change things. People will accept that. Yeah. People will... Uh, okay, we said there are a few folk around the world who would never be... Adolf Hitler could never Absolutely. have resolved. You can't change Joe it. Joe Stalin. Yeah, uh, yeah. The North Koreans. Yeah. Unfortunately, for, sadly for them, mm. there's no going so Robert Mugabe would never be changed by PR. I mean, let's say that also. Well, it's very interesting. The late Nathan Shamirira called me into his office one day in the late 80s. He had been reading uh, about the Conservative Party and how Margaret Thatcher had said that the use of public relations experts in the, in the climb back to power for the Tories in the late 70s was part of the reason for their success and their use of PR experts to keep them focused in the, in the 70s when Margaret Thatcher was in power. So he was intrigued by this and felt, we could we it. do it? And we had lots of discussions and he, being a journalist in his own background, had an idea. But in his mind, he was more of a politician than a journalist. And he said... Yes, but. Yes, but. And he said, I've been to the boss, and the boss says, under no circumstances. <laughs> it won't be done. <laughs> you know, we must just continue as we are. Yeah, what it is. As Nyaradzo, we strive to continuously bring convenience to our clients. Nyaradzo Group is proud to introduce Sawi, a new virtual chatbot assistant on WhatsApp. With Sawi, you are now able to interact with us from the comfort of your home and can be assisted anytime via WhatsApp. With life assurance products, diaspora products, applying and assessing your policy, payment platforms, claims information, and any other queries concerning payments, policy information, or products and services. Simply WhatsApp Sawi on plus 263-712-992892 or register and start interacting and receiving notifications from Sawi on WhatsApp. Now, join in and experience a new level of convenience 24 hours a day with Sawi.
then get into journalism, you worked for the Manika Post, you also worked for the Herald. Do you remember any big stories you, you broke during your time? Absolutely. Or, yeah. Um, when I went into journalism, I went to the Cadet Journalist School and I was um, then posted to the Herald uh, at the end of that. And I was quite happy about that because uh, Harare, bigger than Bulawayo. Um, but within a few months, I was then post, uh, posted to the Post what was then called the Amtali Post, now the Manika Post, which was a weekly newspaper uh, in Mutari. Now, as an aspiring journalist, I thought I was being banished to Siberia. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, it was the finest thing that Beautiful Mutari. The, the place was wonderful. And of course, being on a weekly newspaper and being just two journalists with one editor, you did everything. Sport, court reporting, wow. politics. Wow. Uh, reviews of art, everything. What beautiful training. Absolutely. Could not have been finer. We did sub-editing. We, uh, I stood in for the editor when the editor was away. Who at that age would mm. get an experience like that? So it was marvelous. It was a great training ground. But uh, towards the end of my period there, we had, we had a thing. Um, the North Koreans had arrived in Zimbabwe to train the Zimbabwe National Army. Ah. It was kept quiet which was, once again, from a PR perspective, not a good idea. Say it's happening. And we reported one Friday morning in August 1981 on the front page that the North Koreans were there and were training uh, the Zimbabwe National Army. We didn't make a big thing of it. It was just anything happening in Manika land was going to get coverage. If you sneezed, you'd probably get coverage in the Manika Post. Um, it brought down a ton of retribution. And on the Tuesday following... My editor, the late Jean Maitland-Stewart, and I were escorted up to Harare for a meeting with the Prime Minister, as he was then, Robert Mugabe, and the Minister of Information, Nathan Shamirira, and asked to say why we had uh, covered, the story. covered the story. And she had written an editorial which said, basically, they're here, but we, why wasn't it announced? Why are they being kept? Uh, is there something untoward that this is not being announced? And, of course, it went worldwide, as you can imagine. And we were getting phone calls from all over the world wanting to know what was happening. So it became quite an issue. But once again, from a PR perspective, the government handled it. Disaster. So once again, you know, they could have learned. Uh, I felt then that maybe journalism was going to become tricky. Um, and so I decided to move out. So when I was posted back to Harare... I was very soon offered a job in the world of PR. Um, George Foote. Oh, who, the who, legendary George absolutely. Foote. In my mind, the doyen of PR oh, practitioners yes. in this country. Um, he uh, is still going strong. Is uh, he? Yes, he is indeed. Um, is he in the country? He's still in Harare and wow. uh, retired now. But he does a lot of work uh, with environmental uh, and corporate activity. Mm. So I, I remember George Foot, smart. Uh, he he was a smart dresser. He Absolutely. Was, he was yeah. He 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 had this amazing image, and uh, he made an impression on me when I was in the newsroom as and a I'm PR glad practitioner. He did because yeah. he wasn't just a, a smart talker. In his heart and in his mind, was a good man. Was a was a goodness, a, a genuine goodness. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So you left. Uh, you, you left journalism yeah, to go into PR. Yeah, and I went into PR. George Foot as your uh, with George Foot as my mentor, wow. and I learned that way. Now, in those days, most people going into PR came from a background of journalism or broadcasting. I think the key PR people in this country were all ex-journalists or ex-broadcasters. Mm. 
That's changed over the decades, of course. Things are different now. What's different? How has uh, the profession changed from what it was then with uh, the, 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 the legendary George Foote to where we are at the present moment? What's been the change? Well, it was an interesting time for PR in this country because it was the early days of Zimbabwe. Before the advent of independence, I think the prime focus on PR was publicity, mm. getting in the papers, mm. getting on TV. And... Uh, it changed in Zimbabwe and there became a lot of emphasis on what I might call the social uh, side of PR, which, not the social, but the social anthropology side of, of PR, the social sciences, where we now needed to talk to employees. Employees were no longer workers. They were people who had to be communicated with. And it was a learning curve. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and a lot of people who had never com bothered communicating with employees before now found themselves uh, required to, but more important, really needing to communicate with employees. So that became a big mm. growth area. Mm. And there have been a lot of growth areas since then. PR then was publicity, internal communication, uh, working with uh, marketing on marketing issues. Today, there's a vast amount of the online presence of mm. people. You know, you can go for days and weeks and months without being in the newspapers, but you cannot afford not to be in the social media spotlight. So today's PR person has a very different thrust. Mm -hmm. I always like to give the example too. We had offices in Robinson House in downtown right. Harare. And one of our clients was Colcom, the uh, pork manufacturing company out in the industrial sites. Now, if I wanted to write a news release, I would have to get in the car, drive to Colcom, interview, come back, get my secretary to type up a draft news release, drive that back, have that approved, and then when it was approved, come back to the office where it was typed onto a stencil and roneographed and hand-delivered to all the media houses, wow. which were all in the CPD wow. and posted to the Chronicle and so on. This was before fax even, so that was, uh, we had telex. Telex came in and that helped a little bit for the outside Harare. But that was how we did it. That could take days. Today, I can get a phone call from you. I need something from client X, and I need it in half an hour, please. And it can be done. Mm. Because technology, social yeah. uh, media uh, is there, but mm. the technology behind it is what helps it. I can get on the cell phone. I can get something. I can WhatsApp it to them for mm. approval in WhatsApp. And in fact, I think I was laughing about this. I think it was November, December last year, I was asked by... Somebody, I think it was probably the standard, to come up with something, and it was a deadline time. It was Friday afternoon, 4 o'clock. I would say, why do you leave it till 4 o'clock on Friday? <laughs> <laughs> the, the journalists tend to do, do things that way, isn't it? Maybe they thought the answer would yeah. be better. Anyway, by 5 o'clock, I think this was 4.30, yeah. by 5 o'clock, they had it. Now, that could not wow. have been done in the old days, wow. but it was done, and that's where the technology has improved. And I would say that people today coming into PR have more of a social science background. Mm. If you examine the qualifications, I would say less journalism and more social sciences. Mm. Um, is that a good thing? I think it is a good thing in many ways because it gives them a, a perspective of the communications aspect, mm. whereas a journalist uh, has a different perspective. They simply want to get the facts mm. out, mm. Uh, whereas the social science people may be more involved in what's the behavioral pattern mm. that will follow, where does it come from. Mm. Uh, but, but nonetheless, uh, the sadness I see is a lot of PR writing these days or a lot of PR effort 
is not well written and it disappoints me. Yeah. Um, I'm a great believer in the word being the right words. And, you know, I have my words that I despise and the, the one of the day at the moment is iconic. It's everything suddenly <laughs> iconic. Last year it was awesome. Everything yeah. was awesome. As I was used to say in my trip, because yeah. I still do training of both journalists and mm. PR people and I love interacting with young people mm. because young people have this desire to know mm. and to learn. Well, what advice do you have to young people who watch this show throughout the world when it comes to them aspiring to get into the PR field sure. and be uh, recognized for what they do. What advice do you have? I think I would encourage it. If you're out there and you want to be in PR, do it. Um, I think you need to make sure that you've got the mindset that requires uh, attention to detail, uh, the use of the truth and, and ethical means of, of doing and saying things and uh, learn as much as you can from those who've gone before mm. uh, uh, about what's right and what's wrong. Uh, but there be there of, and recognize that you must make PR people respected. Mm. Chief executives must respect PR, but they're not going to respect PR if you are an mm. inferior product mm. yourself. So be, as, be what you can be and make them listen to you. Mm. You know, talking about that, I really have this strong passionate desire to get our CEOs in a room and train them about how they interact with the public, train them on PR, train them on how they, 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 they engage with, with, with media. Is, is this a passion that's misplaced? No, I think you're absolutely, <laughs> I, I share that passion with you. I would love to see more of that. I, I find a problem in Zim at the moment. When we run courses of what I consider fairly significant uh, corporate uh, level topics. The chief executives don't come, but their managers come. And the managers get fired up and enthused and, in, and they go back and they're get met killed. by this brick wall because the chief executive mm. wasn't there. And I once said to a chief executive, oh, this was a good 10, 15 years ago, why didn't you come? I can't be seen to be at a training yeah. thing with my managers. What there will they go. think of me? Yeah. And I said, well, I think they think you were a damn fine fellow mm. for doing it. Mm. Um, but he felt that he might have been looked down upon. Why is he at a training course? What doesn't he know? You know? Interesting. So you, we, we, I've already said you, you, you've, been, you've been doing this now for 40 years. And you started off with uh, Spectrum, with uh, the legendary uh, Iconic. Uh, <laughs> In that case, 100%. 100%. Um, George Foote. Then we went to Network and Hallmark, and you're now running your own uh, PR company. For many company. years, I've, I've had my Since 1997, own. eh? Yeah. Um, I can't pronounce the, the name of your company. Aquarius? It's Aquarius, yeah. Aquarius. So, um, yeah. It's an interesting one. Who are your one. Key, key clients as Aquarius? Who okay. are your key clients? Uh, in recent years, my clients have tended to be mostly in the travel and tourism sector. Okay. Um, I've worked for many years for the DSTV family, Multi-Choice mm -hmm. Zimbabwe. Mm -hmm. um, the Meikle's uh, hospitality uh, arm. They've recently divested from Meikle's Hotel, mm -hmm. but I still work with Meikle's Hotel, Victoria Falls Hotel. Mm -hmm. For many years, I walked, worked with the late Gordon Adams, Inns of Zimbabwe mm -hmm. and Eastern Highlands. Cresta Hospitality. I work with the Tourism Business Council of Zimbabwe, which is the voice of the tourism operators. Mm -hmm. And we work very closely with, uh, through them with the Tourism Authority and the Ministry. Um, 
And from time to time, I've worked with people, airlines, financial services, of late. But that's mm. the core mm. uh, at the moment. You're having fun. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, what I like about PR is no two days are alike. There's a certain amount of methodology and a certain amount of similarity, but basically no two days can be alike. And that's mm. really, mm. I find, quite exciting. Mm. Perhaps one of the most exciting uh, um, times for you, the highlights, was the visit of uh, Her Royal Highness, uh, the Princess of Wales, to Zimbabwe in 1993. I had the privilege of uh, uh, meeting uh, at uh, the, the British uh, High Commission. Talk to me about what that meant for you. Well, it, it was an exciting period. Um, we were, it came at a time when I was still involved with the Cheer Fund, and I, I always laughed about this afterwards. With the Cheer Fund, we used to struggle and push to try and get moderate amounts of money coming through. The moment you have a genuine oh, celebrity, yeah. the money and. comes at you. <laughs> and that's how it was. Uh, she was coming to Zimbabwe uh, to have a look at projects of institutions for, of which she was the patron. Help Page Zimbabwe, the Red Cross, uh, and uh, also the Leprosy Mission. Mm. They were the three organizations. She was coming to look at their projects here. She was on a PR drive at the time to be serious, to be seen to be a serious person. So she came without glamorous outfits and she came to do some hands-on things at, at institutional outlets around the country. But one of the things we managed, to, and I was very privileged to be asked to organize the visit. So I worked with the British High Commission and with uh, various government ministries because although she was estranged at that time as the wife of the heir to the British throne, she was still in the in the orbit. So mm. there was government and there was a British High Commission involvement as well. Um, and I was very privileged to be invited. So she did quite a bit of touring. But one of the highlights, of course, was a fundraising cocktail reception, which we held. Um, and we managed to get, I think, about 300 people, 300, mm. 400 people to that. Mm. And we raised more money in one night than we had in the Mayor's Cheer Fund in the previous 10 wow. years. Wow, <laughs> the power of, the power uh, of celebrity. convening celebrity. Mm, absolutely. Um, amazing. But uh, she taught me a lesson as mm. well. Mm. Uh, I, uh, to this day, I hear people saying, oh, she was the victim of media. Mm. She was there. Uh, she knew how all to about work the media. media. She knew how to work with the media. She knew mm. how to manipulate the media. She walked into a room, and the first thing her eyes did as they went to the media area, she knew where they were. Uh, and I could see that everything was designed. She mm. was a consummate user of the media. So while she may have been a victim of an incident, she was no victim of the media. If you uh, cultivate an interest in yourself through becoming a celebrity, you can't be surprised when mm. people take an interest. That's, that's a very important uh, point, um, which I'm, I'm going to pursue in terms of, you know, I have some people who think that I have anything to do with it, editorial damage, um, who will call me. And I always say to them, no, it's not me that you need to be talking to. It's the journalist and the editor. I don't do anything to do with, it, with uh, editorial stuff. But he, here's the thing. You need a CEO to cultivate a relationship Absolutely. with the journalists. Totally. You need to understand how to engage with them. They're human beings with egos. Know when to massage their egos and know when to deal with them in a, in a sort of a professional manner. Is, is that the right advice to give? A hundred percent. And it's a weak thing at the moment, I think. Uh, in days gone by, people did take a lot of effort to cultivate the media. When yeah. I say cultivate the media, cultivate an interest uh, in a relationship with the media. 
and a genuine interest, which was at a two-way level. And I've always said to chief executives, get to know the editors, yes. the decision makers. Yes. And your Invest other line time managers. in the relationship. Yes. yes. And get to know the journalists. Yeah. Have familiar tours. The organization that has a crisis, which has a good working relationship with the media, is more likely to come mm. through that crisis in better shape mm. than one that doesn't. And mm. as it so happened, the beverage company I spoke about in the beginning was just such an organization. It had an understanding. And there were people out there in the media who knew if they said this, they meant it. They're not mm. just pulling the wool mm. over our eyes. Mm. Um, I can't let you go without talking about Reps Theatre. I mean, my, you know, I, I drove past uh, the place the other the other day. What's happening? What's your involvement now with Reps Theatre, okay. if at all? I am, yes, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I, I really, I've been a great supporter of theatre for all my life. I love theatre. Yes. I wish there was more theatre in Zimbabwe, Absolutely, you yeah. know? And I'm glad it's coming back That's after good. all this time. You know, we're quite lucky. At Reps, okay. I also see that the, the Jason and Pepper Little Theatre is okay. doing things. Uh, the Theatre in the Park is doing things. So these are all exciting developments. Reps, I got involved with uh, in the early 2000s and got on the committee. I was chairman for three and a half years. Um, it is a voluntary club of people who are interested in theatre. It is also, as a building, a receiving theatre for people who want to put mm. things on. Mm. And I think it's important that it has something on all the time. So they're building up to that at the moment. Mm. Uh, what it needs is people. Right. People need to join as members. Okay. People need to come, not just to be on stage. A lot of people say to me, oh, I don't want to join reps because I don't want to act. Mm. You don't have to act. You mm. can work in the box office. You can run mm. front of house team. You can uh, just be a supporter of the, the, the things that take place. Mm. So the repertory players, which owns reps, needs membership and mm. it's driving towards it. You can count on me joining. Excellent. Because there's a closet... Uh, Ecta inside of me. Fantastic. Yeah. We need them. We need them. I have to tell you that uh, Zane Lucas, who's one of our prolific directors, has just had auditions for a Shakespeare play. Reps tries to put on one set book in the schools right. every year. Right. And this year it's going to be Twelfth Night. One of the difficulties these days is not getting female actors, but ah, getting male, male actors. actors. Really? Yeah. And it, uh, it's a, quite a struggle to get a, a good cast of males to come forward Interesting. so, uh, so the males out there Absolutely. you think you are an actor you think holiday uh, hollywood rather is for you um uh, stan is saying uh, there's an opportunity there. stan, i'm not going to let you go before we share the trevor book club what books have you read uh, stand that you'd recommend to our book-loving uh, audience out there. We love books okay. and we love uh, book recommendations. Well, I, I love biographies uh -huh. or autobiographies and I also love um, a certain amount of fiction but it is biographies and autobiographies that I love the most and I have recently uh, read some fascinating biographies not autobiographies but biographies one of Ronald Reagan, which is a fairly recent one. Mm. Um, Ronald Reagan, they used to call him the great communicator because if anybody understood PR, it was Ronald Reagan. Of all the leaders we've seen in the world in, in decades and decades, he was... The, the man one. was an actor. He was an actor. Mm. And he knew how to communicate yeah. and did it well. Uh, so it was a fascinating biography of him. There's a lot of revision of him now. What is it, what's, what's the book called? Did I miss that? It's called The Gipper, G-I-P-P-E-R, okay. which was his nickname, which he got when he was a football player right. as a youngster, uh, as somebody who organizes and gets things done. 
and it, it's well worth reading. Mm -hmm. I think it's written by Richard Arnold. Okay. I can recommend that. Mm -hmm. I've also read a couple of other biographies of um, a couple of politicians. I read one which I wasn't much impressed with about um, Tony Blair. Mm -hmm. uh, I find him a fascinating character. He is. Um, uh, which book did you, was uh, is that? It's, it's called Tony Blair, The Untold Years. Mm -hmm. By who? Uh, and it's by, I've, I've forgotten the author. It's not Alistair Campbell. No, no, no. it's not okay. Alistair Campbell, no. Okay. But it is by um, a woman who worked for his wife, I think. Okay. And she's written, it's a little bit um, protective of him, but it looks at some of what motivated him. Okay. And I think very often with politicians, we don't understand what's made them mm. what they are. And this one talks a little bit about that as mm. well. The third one? And the third book that I've just re recently read was a biography. The, sorry, it was an autobiography of Kenneth Branagh. So okay. Kenneth Branagh, yeah. the director, the actor, who has done so well recently with his autobiographical film, right. Belfast, um, which was an interesting one for me because Belfast was a, a film. I don't know if many people have seen mm. it. If you haven't, catch mm. it. Mm. Um, it's set in the start of the Troubles in Northern Ireland. So against a backdrop of unimaginable horror, You've got a good family story about family and community. And I've yet to see a film in Zimbabwe about Zimbabwe in its wartime with the facts of the war, but with human interest mm, as the focus. Mm, mm. So if you're a filmmaker out there, that's a, a topic I think you need. We've got great filmmaking potential in this country. Mm. We need to realize it. And I'd love to see something similar. So the Kenneth Branagh one was inspirational mm. in that it showed me you can cover topics of horror and terror and, and sadness, but give it a human, human face. Human face, yeah. yeah. Stan, you've taken me down memory lane um, from the days I entered uh, the newsroom and uh, oh, George Foote um, and a lot of other characters there. Thank you so much, Stan. Good. For well, it's been a pleasure. It's, it's so easy talking to someone who has a good grasp on life. <laughs> I enjoyed this. Thank you so much. Allow me now to tend to our viewers, uh, Stan, who are all over the world who have made uh, this uh, platform the success that it has become. Um, thank you for watching us. Remember, we are out every Monday on YouTube at 7 a.m. Central African time to ensure that you don't miss out in any of these quality conversations, such as one I've just had now with Stan. Please click onto this uh, red button and subscribe. If you subscribe, you'll get an alert every time we have one of these quality uh, conversation. We love your comments below the show. We love the suggestions. Keep them coming and keep on uh, sharing. So until next time, thank you so much. Cheers to you all.